So take your Bible and open it up with me this morning to Nehemiah chapter 9. How many of you believe that our nation desperately needs true revival? How many of you believe our churches need true revival? How many of you believe our church needs true revival? One of the great revivals recorded, recorded in the Bible, there were about ten great revivals in the Old Testament. Then there was the great, great revival in the New Testament in Acts 2 when the day of Pentecost came. But in the Old Testament, one of the great revivals is recorded in Nehemiah 8, 9, and 10. After the children of Israel had returned from Babylon, they had rebuilt the temple, rebuilt the wall. They come together as one man. We saw in verse 8 last week, and they asked Ezra to bring the book of the law, the book of God, and God began to stir revival. Now, in every revival that uh, is recorded in the Bible or in church history, there are really four characteristics that stand out. One is a humble hearing of God's Word. Now, that's what we looked at last week when we looked at Nehemiah 8. Every revival begins with God powerfully speaking through his word and God's people humbly receiving his word into their lives. They do, James 1.21, they with meekness receive the implanted word. And not only do they receive the word, they become committed to being doers of the word. The second characteristic is a wholehearted seeking of the Lord. The third would be uh, a, a desperate desire to be right with God, wherein people are honest with God about their sin and repent of their sin. And the th fourth would be a renewal of commitment uh, to the covenant relationship with the Lord. If Nehemiah gave his testimony to us, he would talk to us about true revival and a solemn assembly. Those four things that we talk about really are what a solemn assembly are about. In Nehemiah 8, after the people had received the word of the Lord. They discovered that there were things that God had commanded that they were not doing. One of the things uh, they were not doing <coughs> was the keeping of the Feast of the Booths. That celebrated God's faithfulness to his people in taking them from Egypt to the Promised Land. His keeping them... And, and, and so they would to celebrate for seven days living in booths that were really a picture of the tents that they lived in in that journey through the wilderness. And God had built 
into Israel's calendar two times where they were to keep the feast or to keep a solemn day. Look down, if you would, in, in chapter 8 at, at verse 18. It says, And day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rules. Throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament, solemn assemblies were called at various times, at times of desperate need. In the book of Joel, we'll look at these later, God moves in judgment against Israel because of their disobedience. He has sent locusts so that their fields are being eaten. And they call a solemn assembly to return to the Lord. A time when they are facing great difficulty, a time when there would be an enemy threatening them, and they would call a solemn assembly to seek the Lord. But there were two times that God worked into the nation of Israel's calendar a solemn assembly. At the end of the feast of the Passover, when God's people would set aside a week and they would reflect upon God's redemption and salvation through the Passover lamb, when they would have that time, when they would understand that they were the redeemed of the Lord. At the end of the Passover every year, they were to have a solemn assembly. And then at the end of the Feast of the Booth, that celebration of God's faithful care, that they were absolutely dependent upon Him, at the end of the Feast of the Booths, they were to have a solemn assembly. That's what's happening here in Nehemiah. A solemn assembly was a time when the routine was set aside to earnestly seek the Lord. In, in Numbers uh, 29, 35, the Lord said that on the eighth day, on the, the, the solemn assembly, they were to do no ordinary work. The routine was set aside. It was a time when hearts were to be turned earnestly to the Lord. Secondly, it was a time when the whole congregation would gather together to be before the Lord. It was a time of fasting where the people would put aside other things and say that our spiritual need is greater than anything else. It was a time of intense prayer. We're going to look at what that really looks like this morning in Nehemiah 9 and 10. And then it was a time when the people consecrated themselves anew and renewed their covenant relationship with the Lord. 
And here in Nehemiah 9 and 10, we, we really have a description of what a solemn assembly looks like. We're going to do something in the month of September, in the month and the first Sunday in October. Starting October or September the 8th, we're going to go through something called consecrate the people. What does it really look like for us to come to that place to say that Jesus is Lord over every area of our lives? That we live with a sense of dedication to a purpose that is far greater than us, and that is the glory of God and the expansion of the kingdom of God and the winning of people to Jesus. And then we're going to do that for four weeks together. And then the first Sunday in October, we're going to ask God to do something deep and supernatural in our lives. We're going to come together to earnestly seek the Lord. We're going to come together to humbly hear His Word. We're going to gather as the congregation of the Lord before Him. And we're going to ask Him to bring the stirrings of real revival to individual lives, to families, and to his church. And so this morning, I, I want us just to look at Nehemiah 9 and 10 and learn three things about a solemn assembly. They've kept the feast of the, pay, uh, the, the booth. They, they hear the word of God. It breaks their hearts, they repent, and then uh, Nehemiah and Ezra say, Rejoice in the Lord. God is working in your midst. And then, as the feast of the booth is over, they come together for this solemn assembly. And there are three things that stand out. Number one is humility before the Lord. Look down in chapter 9, verse 1. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel assembled with fasting in sackcloth with earth on their heads. And then it comes down and, and, and it says in, 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 in verse 2 that the, the priest cried out to the Lord with a loud voice. A solemn assembly isn't some kind of technique or formula that if you do this, then revival will come. No, a solemn assembly in the Bible is all about the heart attitude of a people that they are so desperate for God and for God to do something that they humble themselves before him. There, there are different pictures of that kind of humility in the Old Testament. Here it is the putting on of sackcloth 
and, and, and ashes or dirt on the face where they are before the Lord and they are saying, Lord, we have nothing in ourselves. It, the Bible also describes acts of humility as, as bowing or kneeling down before the Lord. David would say in the Psalms, come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker for he is God and we are the sheep of his pasture and the people of his hand. The Bible talks about those who prostrate themselves before God. They are overwhelmed with the greatness of God that they fall on their face. All of those speak about humility. I want you to know there'll never be a real moving of God that does not start in the humility of God's The most familiar verse of revival for all of us is 2 Chronicles 7, 14. And it says, if my people who are called by my name will do what? Humble themselves. Now everything else that follows is an expression of that humility. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. All of those flow, first of all, from a humility of the heart. Now, God makes a conditional promise. He says, if and then, if you do this, if you humble yourselves and pray, seek my face, turn from your wicked ways, then I will heal here from heaven and will forgive your sins and will heal your land. There's sometimes that we cry out for God to do something great and powerful and we wonder why he doesn't do it. And he's saying to us, I wonder why you don't do humbling, praying, seeking, turning. You do that, then I will move. And so the Bible talks about humility. 2 Samuel 2.28 says of the Lord, You save a humble people, but your eyes on the haughty are on the haughty to bring them down. Isaiah 66.2 says, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And James 4, 6 says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Do you want a lot of grace? in your life you want the overflow of the grace of God in your church it begins with humility before God 
And humility simply says, God, unless you do something, nothing will happen. The second thing that, that happens in this solemn assembly, not only do they, they humble themselves before the Lord, but there is intense praying that comes. And, and the prayer is really the larger part of, of chapter 9. And there are two really parts to this prayer. The first thing that they do is that they confess their sin and they repent of their sin. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says that if we say that we have no sins, we deceive ourselves. If we say, well, we're all right, we don't need anything, then we deceive ourselves. Years ago, I heard Leroy Towns tell, tell a story. He said uh, he was leaving to go to the church one Sunday and... Uh, and his wife told him she was going to, to clean out their closet and throw away everything that they didn't use anymore. He said that afternoon he came home, and out at the end of the driveway were just bags and bags of clothes. And, and, and he, he said he stopped and got out, and he opened up one of those bags, and he was looking at it, and he pulled out the shirt, and he said, you know, I, that used to be my favorite shirt. Man, I did love it. That was a comfortable shirt. He said, I took it, and I threw it into the back seat of my car. And I said, I found this pair of pants. Boy, I love those pair of pants. Wore them hunting many times. Said to him. He said, before he knew it, he had filled his back seat with garbage. And you and I do the same thing. We go back and find things that we used to be comfortable with. And that's not too bad. Well, I just put it back into my life. There's that attitude. I just don't want to forgive. I'm going to put that back into my life. Well, I want to speak my mind. I don't want to be humble and serve. I'm going to put that back in. And before you know it, we've got all kinds of garbage in our lives. And John says, if you, don't, if you say you don't have garbage, you deceive yourself. But if you confess your sin, if you get on God's side against your sin, and say, that's well, that's that dishonors you, that grieves you, that's so unlike you, and I don't want that in my life anymore. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Now that's what's happening here in Nehemiah 9. They come to this solemn assembly. They are humble, and they begin to confess. They confess the sins of their fathers and their own sins. They confess stubborn pride. Look at verse 8, 16. It says, But they 
and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their necks and did not obey your commandments. Now, up to that, he's just been telling how God blessed and blessed and blessed and took care of them. But here they are. They are presumptuous and stiff-necked. They're saying, we won't bow our knee. We want to do what we want to do instead of what you want us to do. Instead of being convicted of their sins, they stood stiff-necked, refusing to bow down before the Lord. They're like that guy. Preached on repentance. He said, listen, when I was saved, I repented, and if I ever change my mind, I'll let God know. That's pride. That's like a guy saying to his wife, saying, well, I told my wife I loved her once, and if I ever changed my mind, I'll tell her. You try that, guys, and see what kind of intimate relationship you have with your wife. You have that attitude and see what kind of intimate relationship you can have with Jesus. They were prideful, refused to bow. Not only were they arrogantly prideful, but they were continually disobedient. Look at verse 15, repeatedly disobedient. They refused to obey. They heard the word, but they were not doers of the word. The word reveals God's eternal will and way for the lives of his people. And when it comes to what God says in his word, there are only two options, obedience or disobedience. And they chose repeatedly, over and over, in that stubborn pride, that says, I want my way, I want things the way I want them to be, they departed from the will of God and the word of God. And when that happened, they became dishonoringly ungrateful. Listen to what it says. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. They took what God did in blessings for granted. You remember when Jesus encounters these ten lepers? Nothing in the Bible is more representative of the distortion that sin brings into our lives than leprosy. Here are these guys that have this disease. It disfigures their body. Their body is just like one open, oozing sore. It separates them from families and friends. They can't live inside the city. They have to go outside and live by themselves. They can't worship God. They're 
can't go into the temple. They are ostracized. They are required anytime anybody comes close to them that they cry out, unclean, unclean, to warn them to stand, stay away. And so here are these ten lepers, and they have this horrendous condition. And Jesus is passing by, and they cry out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus heals all ten of them. Now, can you imagine? Here, absolute life transformation. And they are all running away, happy. One of them stops in his track and he comes back. And he falls at the feet of Jesus. And he says, thank you. And Jesus said, were there not ten? Where are the other nine who do not return to bring glory to God? When you and I are not grateful, when we don't give praise and glory to God, we dishonor Him. The third thing, fourth thing that they confess is blasphemous idolatry. You go down to verse 18, and it says, Even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you out of Egypt and have committed great blasphemy that you and I don't have golden idols or wooden idols or carved idols that we bow down to but I want you to know there are idols in our hearts an idol is anything that displaces God as being preeminent in your heart that keeps you from loving him with all your heart Paul would write to the Corinthians and he would talk about the idol of covetousness, just wanting things more than you want God. And that blasphemes God because it robs him of his glory. And then they confess their blatant rebellion. Look down in verse 29. Nevertheless, we were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast the law behind their backs. Verse 29, or 30, says, But when they had rest, they did evil before you. And then... It just comes down to the end in verse 32. We have acted wickedly. They hear the word of God. They become obedient to the word of God. 
I see the wonder and the glory of God exposes the depth of sin and they just they just cry out in confession. If we say we have no sin, if we're stubborn and stiff-necked, we deceive ourselves. We lie to ourselves. But if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The second part of their prayer, they confess their sins, but they also focus on the greatness and the glory of God. Let me just give it to you real, real quick. They, they, they praise the, the greatness of God. They, they, they came to that place where they, they focused on the Lord more than anything else. Look at verse 8. They said, you are the Lord alone. You have made heaven and the heaven of heavens and with all of the host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in you, them. And you're, you preserve all of the host of heaven. The host of heaven worships you. They... Praise God for his keeping promises. Look down at the end of verse 8. It says, and you have kept your promises for you are righteous. And then over and over in their prayer, they express all at the grace and the mercy and the steadfast love of God. Look at over in verse 17, it says, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Come down to verse 19. It says, you in your great mercies did not forsake them. Verse 20, and you gave your good spirit to them. Over and over they rehearse. Look at, at verse uh, 31. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did make an end of them, or, or you did not make an end of them and forsake them, for you are a gracious and a merciful God. And then they express humility before the holiness and the righteousness of God. Verse 23, you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. You have dealt faithfully. Now listen to me. What did Jesus teach us about prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. No. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Prayer that focuses on the glory of God moves heaven 
to work mightily on earth. They humbled themselves. They cried out to the Lord. Confession, hungry for the glory of God. And then they renewed their covenant relationship. They do something. In verse 30, they, they, they've heard the word of God, they've responded, God's cleaned them, and now they're going to renew their covenant relationship. And they write it down. Look at, at, at verse uh, 38 of, of chapter 9. It says, because of all of this, we made a firm committing in writing and sealed documents, uh, are, 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 and, and the sealed document are names of the princes and the Levites and the priests. They make, here's the covenant that we're going to make, and we're going to sign it. And there are two things that they do in this renewing of their covenant relationship. Number one, they consecrate themselves. They say, Lord, we're going to separate ourselves from all the foreigners. We, we've been disobeying you and intermarrying and allowing them to influence us away from you. We're going to consecrate. We're going to set ourselves apart to you. And then they made a commitment to comprehensive obedience. You read through chapter 10, and, and, and they say things like, Lord, we're going to keep the Sabbath. And, uh, and, and, and Lord, we're, we're uh, on the year of Jubilee, the seventh year, we're going to forgive all the debts. And Lord, we're, we're going to bring a third part of a shekel for the service of the Lord's house just to provide what's on the inside. And then, Lord, we're going to bring the first fruit of our increase to you for your house. And then they come down in the, the last verse and they says, we will not neglect the house of God. And over and over, they just go through the list of things that they're going to be obedient that God says in his word. Now, for us to do that means that we come to commit every area of our lives to the Lordship of Jesus. It means that we come to the place that Romans 12.1 becomes a daily reality in our lives. For Paul says, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, looking back at everything that God did in saving you, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto the Lord. This wasn't a time for God to do a superficial work but a deep work in the lives of his people.
I believe with all of my heart. We're living in desperate and dangerous days. It grieves my heart beyond measure. The families that are being destroyed. Churches divided or dying. While a nation spurns God. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then, that's a promise of God, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. You and I can be a part of the problem, or we can be a part of God's 